The first time I prayed out loud, I remember clearly not wanting to. I remember starting to follow Jesus when I was 15, uh, and a few months later, uh, I remember people kept praying out loud like at church and stuff, and it was weird. I wasn't ready at all to engage in that sort of space. But a few months after I had started following Jesus, a friend of mine was in the hospital, and uh, and we went down to the waiting room, and we're praying for him. He's fine, by the way, just to take off anyone who's worried about my friend from 18 years ago. Um, I remember being in the waiting room and a group of friends saying, we're going to pray for him. And uh, we prayed out loud, and then we had that moment where we've all agreed to pray out loud, and I'm the only one left that, like, hasn't prayed in the circle. And so, but no one said amen yet, so I'm supposed to say something now. Um, and I'm sure my words were not, uh, although sincere, were not, like, highly Christianly in any supernatural way. It was a normal, obedient, average prayer where I just, like, from my heart spoke to God. And that... Uh, is what Jesus is actually getting after in this text today. He's getting, again, not after the words that we pray or the people around us, but he's getting after our hearts. So while that prayer was sincere and its intentions were to the Lord, it, it began this, uh, this normalized Christian culture thing where we pray, like we talk to God in front of others, which that's kind of weird if you think about it for just a second. Like it's, we talk to God with a group of people, and we see Jesus do it too, so it's not like heretical. We should do that, um, but it's this normal practice uh, for Jesus' community to do but it takes getting used to it. It takes, uh, it takes us uh, belonging to a Christian community for some period of time before we begin to feel comfortable doing it. And that's completely okay. Wherever you're at on your, like, praying out loud in front of others journey is perfectly okay. If that's like, I'm not comfortable, I don't join Monday night prayer specifically because people are going to expect me to pray and I don't want to do that. That's perfectly okay. Or if you, like, love praying out loud and you, like, find Jesus and blessing the community as you pray out loud, that's perfectly okay. In a similar way, as we've been talking about last week, when we see giving to the needy and Jesus is really diving in deep to people's hearts, that they're not doing this thing, they're not giving to the needy to be seen. In the same way, this text um, is, is God inviting us in that same sort of heart, deep relational component of following Him. We don't just give to the needy that others would see us give to the needy, and we don't pray that others would see us pray. He wants to form, and throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, he wants to form a, like, heart posture, a heart relationship, this, like, intimacy where giving to the needy flows from, where praying, whether in quiet, in your room, or out in front of others, where like our heart flows from that, our prayer flows from that place. Verse 5 says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, or mask wearers, as we looked at last week. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. 
So I didn't see anyone standing on the street corners praying this week, just to like, I didn't see that. No one was like, look how pious I am. Look how spiritual I am. I'm standing on the street corner calling out to God. I didn't see any of that, at least not from any of you, nor from me. Um, But one of the things that we have to understand as we look at the scriptures is that these take place in a specific time to a specific culture. And in, in Jewish culture, this was a normal practice of prayer. In Jewish culture, you were called to pray three times a day. Think like our Islam friends or the Muslim community. They pray three times a day. And in Jewish culture, it was much the same. They would pray morning, midday, and evening. And wherever they were in the midst of their day, when these times came, they would cry out to God in prayer. And so when Jesus says, like, mentions synagogues and street corners, uh, he mentions that intentionally because people are making much to do about their prayers to God, which the rest of the community is practicing, but their desire, their intent is not to pray and commune with God, but to be seen by others. And just like a side note that hopefully we hit one day in the future, um, establishing a few times throughout the day to regularly return to prayer is actually a good thing. And so often in the like evangelical community, if you're anything like me, we're like, we just pray whenever we feel like it. And then I'll get through a lot of days where I won't have prayed nearly as much as I wanted to. Anyone else like that whatsoever? Just me. Got one hand in the back. Appreciate you. So building in this structured prayer rhythm actually isn't a bad thing. I don't want to lose that, but that's not what the text is getting after today. And so what what was happening is uh, faithful Jews are calling out to God in the middle of the synagogue that they would be seen by others. They're standing on street corners calling out to God that people would notice the greatness or loftiness of their prayers, that they would be perceived as people who are holy. And Jesus goes on to say that they, those people, have already received their reward, that being seen was actually their intense longing. And now they have been seen by others, like job well done. You've accomplished what you were aiming for. And as we go on to read the contrast of Jesus' teaching in prayer, and by no means is today's text all-inclusive on prayer, um, but there's still much we can learn from in the context or the contrast of what Jesus is saying we find in verse 6 in comparison to to verse 5. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This contrast between going out on the street corner to be seen by others and going away in your room to be seen by God, it has a starkly different reward And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But what Jesus is actually getting after here is that when you pray, and hear those words at the beginning of the text, when you pray, Jesus is saying, do not be mindful of others and those around you, but be mindful, wholly devoted to, wholly like given to God. While Jesus' language of go into the closet or go into the room and shut the door is a bit hyperbolic because we see Jesus praying not in this way also, Um, part of that is this, like, we want to give our full selves in prayer to God. 
And many of you, because most of you have been around Christian community, have been around following Jesus for some amount of time. It's just the reality of the people who are gathered in this room today. Most of you have experienced someone that when you uh, pray in community, they actually, um, they actually like go into this secret place in their heart. So while they're not like in a room with the door closed praying, what they are is like their heart has this secret place where they go. They've like built in this practice and rhythm that when I pray, like I'm interacting in an intimate way with my father. I have a friend, Hannah, who's like this, that uh, when Hannah would be with us and she would pray, there might, like, I would join her in her prayers, but at some point, often, my mind would go like, she's not even here anymore. Like she's, like, she's as much as we on earth could be, she's like in the heavens. She's like in the throne room crying out to God. And most of us have experienced someone like that that win they anymore. And while that habit of prayer is, is born from relational intimacy with the Father, it is born out of not a seen place but a secret place. If you want to, like, grow in your prayer life, grow in the way you communicate with Jesus, grow in intimacy with him as you both talk and listen to the creator of the heavens and the earth, you, you start that in this, like, hidden place. And as that becomes habit, like forming habit for your heart, once that is the norm for your heart, you now carry that wherever you may go. That when you pray, it's like you're in the closet again. That when you're in community or when someone comes by and shares that it's been a hard day or something has gone on, like our normal disposition of heart, the normal place where our heart is, is to immediately go to prayer, go to the secret place, the place where I commune with God, the place where I'm in union with God. And so that's the type of imagery that Jesus is getting after here. He's talking about this distinction between like prayer and what we often do is like worry out loud to the universe. There is a substantial difference between me being nervous and saying I'm nervous and saying, Lord, I'm nervous. There is a substantial difference between noticing even complaining about the things that are wrong in the world and noticing the things that are wrong in the world and crying out, even if it's a whisper, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And so these, these habits, this prayerful habit, this prayerful closet, this inward place where we go, this, this is what like life in the kingdom flows from. It's not by accident that like this little section on prayer is at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. That's by like literary design to communicate the value and importance of prayer at the center of a follower of Jesus' life in the kingdom of God. And sometimes prayer um, requires more than words from us. 
Sometimes prayer requires like a whole body experience from us. It requires being on our knees. It requires like holding something sacred in your hand. It requires like my body, that my whole soul, that everything that I am would engage with the Father. The point is that prayer is a place where we communicate and commune with the living God. And that's such a normal church Christian phrase that we blow right past the reality that we communicate with God and God communicates with us. Like remind you, like even for a second, let us just sit in that truth. God wants to speak to you. And God allows you, his creation, his creatures here on earth, finite understanding. He allows you to come make your requests known to him who spoke the world into being. That's beautiful. So beautiful. What is beautiful about this passage is that Jesus says that when your attention and your intention alone belongs to God, your Father, notice that word Father again. Think back to last week's teaching that like the, the Brandon shared like the fatherly perspective where a child just wants their father to, to, to watch, to listen, to participate, to see. Notice that language, your father. And, and for some of you, even that word father is actually like a trigger in your story. Like you didn't come from a place where you could trust a father or your father left or your father wasn't stable or emotionally held, like you didn't have a relationship with your father. And I pray that like the spirit would redeem that in you today. And maybe he's redeemed that in the past, but like even through this teaching, would he redeem it again? Would he redeem what a good father is again? A father who listens, who desires to hear from his children. That's who our father is. But Jesus makes this unique mention that there is a reward. And he contrasts that with the reward of like those for you that pray on the street corner in the synagogues, you already have your reward. But those of you that go into the closet, you have a different type. And tell us what this reward is. But this idea of a Christian reward, of a Christian reward, of our like overly simplistic gospel paradigm. Let me unpack that for a second before I lose you. Uh, often in evangelical culture, we view things and people, our relationship to God is either like saved or not saved, this like binary existence where our full reward is eternity with him. And I would say yes to some of that, probably most of it. But what this text actually demonstrates is that following Jesus and that what happens in our lives now and later in eternity that actually may be a bit more complex than our oversimplified idea of either being saved or not being saved. But that there is reward to be had now. And I don't know exactly what that means or exactly what that says. Jesus actually doesn't clarify. But for those that follow in the way of Jesus... Those that live a life constructed after Jesus, the teachings 
that like the teachings of Jesus have deeply formed and reformed our lives. Jesus is saying that like when you do that, there's a different type of reward. And that's not me making it up. It's like in the text. When you go alone in the closet, you have a different reward than those who pray outside. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so while, of course, we believe that, like, Jesus died for our sins and that we have eternal life because of that, we don't believe, like, life starts then. We believe life starts now, that flourishing starts now, that abiding in the presence of Jesus starts now, that, like, living into the kingdom starts now. It's not this far-off picture. It's like, come and seek me and you will find me. It's, I will reward you when you come be with me. And that's such a beautiful part of this passage. That the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's continue on. Um, one of the things that this passage stirs up, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's not many of us out standing on street corners in prayer. Um, but there is a question that I think it's right for us to contemplate is like Jesus wants to grade against whatever like religious piety we think we carry. Jesus wants to call out the things that we enjoy being seen in. Jesus wants to call out the things that we do that others would see them and think that we are Christ-like. He wants to call out, and he's not calling out just a behavior here. He's calling out the intention of our hearts. But often the behavior is the thing that we can see before we can get to the intention of our hearts. So what about our faith do we put on display for others to ensure that we are seen in a Christian or religious light? And this can be so many different things. This can be like church attendance on Sunday. It's probably like the American number one. Is like, I go to church, therefore I'm a Christian, and I'm good. Because the whole world sees me going to church because I post about it in my stories. But it's also a number of different things that happen in our own heart. For some of you, you're raised in a tradition that, like, shuns people who drink alcohol. And you're like, but I don't drink alcohol, and I'm going to tell people I don't drink alcohol. So then I can tell them that I don't drink alcohol because I love Jesus. That's why which implies that other people who do drink alcohol don't love Jesus or something like that. But again, like the intent of the heart for me in my own life, I found myself doing it um, with, like at our, in our house, we don't have a TV, which is like the reason we did that is really beautiful because we don't want TV to like shape and form our family dynamic. But I will find myself going like, yeah, we don't have a TV. Like we're pretty great. You should think highly of us because we're different. And like, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. There's things that we practice in our life to be seen, but the Father in heaven sees your real intent. He sees your real motivation deep in your heart. And God says there's a greater way to demonstrate commitment to Jesus and obedience to follow him. That that is to demonstrate your holiness, not that others would see it, but that you demonstrate your holiness, your devotion, 
to God. And then out of demonstrating devotion to God, sometimes we do that in public spaces, but we always do that in private spaces. We fall into this trap of becoming hypocrites if we don't do that in private spaces, and we continue to do that in public spaces. If God is not real to us in the private, why would we ever act like He's real to us in the public? If God is not real to you, if your relationship with Him is not real and active and private, why on earth would you act like it is in the public? You're, you're, like you're almost, if not fully, lying to yourself, surely lying to others to put on this facade of who you think you ought to be or who others think you are or what you want them to think you are. And Jesus here, like, pokes down deep in the heart and says, like, the intention. What is your intention? Would you come be with me in private? Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask him. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I know the Shailin version. I don't know the old, I wasn't raised in a Christian church, so I, I don't know the like old school version. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings. So, somewhere in there. 1 Kings 18, verse 25. We're going to read a story about Elijah, the remaining prophet of the Lord Yahweh, the creator God. And there are 450 prophets of Baal, and they're like arguing back and forth over who is the real God. And Elijah is calling out the people to follow God. He even says in verse 21, before the part that we're reading, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But do not waver between the two. And so we pick up in verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or maybe he's busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Verse 29, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And we know the rest of the story that Elijah goes to cry out to God and that the fire of the Lord falls and consumes, burns up the sacrifice. Or verse 39 says, when all the, and, and when that happens, verse 39 says, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But back in verse 28, you see the practice of trying to get Baal's attention. They're dancing, shouting, crying, shouting louder, slashing themselves, frantically prophesying, hoping that Baal would respond. 
It was common practice in the ancient world to get the attentions of the gods. You had to, like, go on in prayer for hours and hours and hours. The first movement of the text in 1 Kings says from morning until noontime. And then if that doesn't work, you perform outlandish things to get their intention, like cutting yourself because the gods of ancient history have always loved violence. And so you, like, commit violence against your own body that the gods might give you their attention. And we see this even again in Acts 17. You don't need to turn there. But they pray to the god of Aster for about two hours, the Scriptures say, just like calling out that Aster would respond. And so Jesus takes this picture, and I want you to hold that picture in your mind of people crying out, prophesying, babbling, cutting themselves to get God's attention. And then he says, verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The harshness of the other gods of the heavens and how are they perceived to act toward their people, take that and compare that to the relational intimacy of a good father who already knows what you need before you ask. And like a good father often does, like if there's something that one of my children need and I know they need that, I'll allow them to go through the process to go like, oh, dad, I need your help. Or, oh, Dad, I need you to be involved in this with me. In that same sort of way, not perfect by any means, but that same sort of way, God often knows what we need, but then will allow us to come to Him and make our requests known to Him. And that's such a beautiful picture comparing, comparing gods of the ancient Near East to Yahweh, to Creator God, to our God, to the one Lord of heaven, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that, like, intimate relational beauty He has for you. He knows you so well, He already knows your needs before you ask. And then Jesus in the text teaches us how to pray. In Luke's account, what we call the Our Father or uh, the Lord's Prayer in Luke's account, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray before he uh, shares the Our Father with them. But in Matthew's account, Matthew places it at the like very center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount text. So, like, while we should notice that a, a teaching on don't be religious, pi- don't be re- like religiously pious, is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. At the center of the center is the Our Father prayer. Or as, uh, or as some w- would say, like uh, Dale Bruner talks about this prayer, the Our Father prayer, and how it's all-encompassing of Christian life. He says this, the Lord's prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell. And in between is six brief repetitions that contain everything important in life. And it starts with the Our Father in heaven. In the first line, we see a calling of our heart to attention to prayer, a realization of who it is exactly that we are speaking with. 
like earlier, we don't mumble our anxieties into the universe. We pray to a living God who's a good father that sees us. That we mustn't just quickly move past our prayers, but we must embody our prayers. Also notice the communal call out here, our Father in heaven. It goes on to say later in the prayer, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. You see, this is a prayer for his church, a prayer for his people, but this also is like what Jesus expects of what happens moving forward, that people, followers of him, are not individuals isolated in a room by themselves, but they are a community of people together. They're a, like, organic, known, intimate community that could cry out if needed to, like, give us bread today, Lord. All of us, the people that are here, give us bread today. May we have bread again today, God. But we see this just, like, communal mention in this prayer. And then we move to the next line, next few lines of the prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, for God's name to be made holy or to be seen as special or distinct, when it says, like, hallowed be your name, what it is is, like, that we may come to a place of recognition that God's name and his character, the person who he is, is unique amongst all the rest. But that that call, that prayer, hallowed be your name, it, it overlaps with the next few lines of your kingdom coming and your will being done. You see, these three lines, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they sort of dance together. Or as Dell Allison says, the coming of the kingdom, the hallowing of God's name, and the doing of God's will on earth as in heaven are in essence all in one. They're all one. They each look at the telos or the like end goal of all of history. Each refers to the fitting culmination of God's salvific work. And our orientation as followers of Jesus who pray these types of prayers and live these kinds of lives, we wait and participate in God's reconciliatory story of the world. This is how, as people who follow Jesus, this is how we are defined. We are defined as people who orient ourselves to God's name and character alone. We are defined as people who orient ourselves to the inauguration and the manifestation of God's kingdom here on earth. We orient ourselves to doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We spend our lives here. This is kingdom language because we have a good king. And so all of this is bound up in following and obeying and doing the will of our king. So when I say we spend our lives here, I actually like, I also mean that in the monetary sense. That the value of our life we give toward God's redemptive plan for the world that his kingdom would come and bend our lives in that way. Continue in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. And this one is actually a tougher one for much of us. I remember being younger. I remember Jackie and I had been married for a year, maybe two, and we lived in a condo in the southwest part of town. 
And I remember uh, getting my first job where I could like actually pay my bills and like not have to worry about like, where's the money going to come from? We don't know. And I remember getting my first job where we could dependably pay our bills. And then like a week or two in, I remember going like, oh, what does it mean to depend on God now? What does it mean? What does this line give us today our daily bread? What does that mean if I have a job that I know is going to pay our bills? What do I do with this? Because so often uh, we read this line and see it as like financial security. They think like God's provision of food through manna for the Israelites as they left Egypt. We see the like our needs being met in so much of the developed American West. Um, we have like we have our needs met. We have good-paying jobs that buy us good and or decent homes, many of us anyways. We can pay our bills. We can put gas in our car. At the very least, like we have a $1,200 phone that can call us an Uber if we run out of gas. But I remember struggling to understand what depending on God looked like moving forward. And then I remember in a quiet time the Lord being like me bringing this question to him. And the Lord's saying, how about the breath in your lungs? Do you provide that? How about your body and your mind? It may not be about the food on the table, but it may actually be about the opportunity of our heart to wake up to the reality of what God provides for us, whether that be through work or something else. What about the opportunity to, like, go home and play with your children this afternoon? Or to take a walk in the cool of the day and, like, thank you that there is a little bit of cool of day back in our days now. But this disposition of, like, expecting or thinking that we meet our own needs, that we provide our own bread, it's not a biblical disposition. It's not a biblical posture of heart. The correct posture of heart is that recognizing that everything good in the world comes from God. All good things come from above. So we must, like, do the work of distancing ourselves from a secular story that says we provide for ourselves that our heart would fall in love with the story that Jesus provides for our needs again. Because often people who grow cold in asking God to provide for them lose heart of how much the good Father has really provided for them. Continue in verse 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Holy moly. And this beckons in us what Jesus has been getting at actually through the Sermon on the Mount. The last, the last part of this scripture beckons in us a different type of story 
We see this through not harboring anger in our hearts. We see this through enemy love. We see this through blessed are the peacemakers. We see this continually that like the river of the kingdom that is flowing is not one where I hold on to people who have wronged me. It's just not what the kingdom does. It's not what kingdom people do. And so Jesus here takes us to a place where, where he reminds us of the forgiveness that we have been given. I was even reading in a commentary this week, in particular that last line, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And that is like really, really, really heavy. And it should be because Jesus said it. And, and there was a commentary I was reading that was like, surely that's not what he means. So let's move on from it. And there's a little bit of hyperbolic nature to this. Like we see people forgiven that don't have an opportunity to forgive others. We see that. Jesus says that to the thief next to him on the cross. Like you're forgiven, surely you'll be with me. And he doesn't have an opportunity to go forgive all the people in his world or go ask or go forgive all the people in his world. But I, I also, so like while there's a little bit of hyperbolic nature here, Jesus does that with intention. Jesus does that because he wants this statement to land in a heavy way. He doesn't want you to move past the reality that, like, your Father in heaven forgives you, and that is true. But the invitation, the expectation is that you, because of God's forgiveness for you, you be a person of forgiveness. And notice that, like, Jesus doesn't give a caveat here of, like, unless they've hurt you really bad or unless it's a toxic relationship and you've tried before or unless you've done X, Y, and Z and they still say no. Or, and, and, and what's beautiful is, like, this is, this is actually a part of our heritage and our inheritance in the Christian faith as we inherit stories over the last 2,000 years of followers of Jesus forgiving people when they shouldn't because of Jesus' lines like these. So we inherit that story. And we're invited to continue to practice that story that the expectation for a follower of Jesus is that you be a person of forgiveness. Or as Adolf Schalter says, there is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of one who forgives. How could we come to the Lord in prayer and say, would you forgive me when I am unwilling to forgive the people that are around me? What Jesus is getting after is that our default posture would be that of God's posture. Back to enemy love in Matthew 5 posture. Back to not harboring anger. Back to all those things. Remember Brandon talked about last, last week, like the Sermon on the Mount is building on itself. And so we take all of those things and we put them into practice and, and we, we continue to labor in these spaces until when? Until the, you die. You labor in these spaces for the rest of your life. And why do we labor in these spaces? Why would we do that deeply, deeply? People who do things because Jesus tells us to, that's a fantastic thing. It's a life marked by the Spirit, walking in presence and unity with God. But this is also, as we've been told earlier, like this is how we make God known on the earth. This is how we demonstrate God's love right where we are. 
It's forgiving the people that don't deserve forgiveness by the world's standards, by the world's marks. This is how we act like God. Not in like we're God way, but like we get to bear the same character as Him. And this is something we labor to grow into. We labor to grow into. Let's pray. If you would, actually, while we pray, um, or before we start praying, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew 6. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the Our Father together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your teaching. Thank you for the challenge of, like, the way that we've always lived and your challenge to live differently, to be people of forgiveness, to be people of love, to be people who don't desire to be seen or sought out, but to be, like, in the quiet privacy of just, like, being present to you, God. Would you teach us how to be so present to you that, like, we don't, we don't leave that space. Would you teach me how to do that, God? Would you teach us how to labor in the private, that as we step into the public, that we would be able to continue to commune with you? Would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to forgive others if we've been forgiven so much? Maybe even now it's like, remember how much you were forgiven. Remember who you were, that while you were an enemy of God, he died for you. That while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then like what the Spirit, what Jesus, what God has done with your story, your trajectory of life. And because of that forgiveness, God, we want to become people of forgiveness. That as freely as we are forgiven, may we forgive just as freely. Let us read the Our Father. If you would, let's stand. That feels right. Starting in the middle of verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let us sing to him. 